in general, labs don't speak FDA. I think there will certainly need to be a significant educational effort on FDA's part to really get labs up to speed. You know, labs want to do the right thing. We all want the same thing, which is safe and accurate tests for, for our patients. But labs may need some help gaining the the understanding of all these requirements and, and the terminology. Terminology is always tough. I think the educational effort is a really important consideration. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Across the globe, visionaries and innovators are building the future of medical devices, devices that redefine boundaries, extend possibilities, and improve the quality of life for millions of people. But every innovation encounters obstacles, regulatory complexities, data management hurdles, evolving quality standards. Transitioning from prototype to the patient is filled with challenges. There are a multitude of regulations and requirements that can get in the way. Many teams have inherited or relied on legacy tools, outdated systems, and manual processes that can move the product lifecycle backward rather than forward, turning potential medical breakthroughs into nothing more than long-held ideals that just couldn't quite make it. Time is of the essence, and with every delay in getting to market, the potential to change real lives for the better gets diminished. And this is where Greenlight Guru can help. Our suite of purpose-built solutions helps companies modernize quality management, streamline design and development, improve clinical trial operations, and keep up with industry trends and changing regulations. Ultimately, getting high-quality medical devices to market faster and keeping them there. We help companies pivot from pitfalls to progress, moving devices forward, not backward. Over a 1,000 medtech innovators trust Greenlight Guru to help them move faster, get more efficient, reduce risk, and ensure quality, so that in every innovation, every device reaches its full potential, improving lives around the world and setting new standards in healthcare. Greenlight Guru, moving medtech forward. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a proposed ruling from the FDA on LDT's laboratory-developed tests. LDTs are a critical component of the healthcare landscape. They're regulated through CLIA, uh, but FDA has signaled dissatisfaction with the level of oversight and would like to take a stronger role in regulating the development, the validation, and marketing of LDTs. So we brought in Shannon Bennett. Shannon Bennett is an experienced leader in regulatory affairs, quality management, and strategic planning with a proven track record of driving innovation and navigating complex regulatory environments. He's currently the director of regulatory affairs, and his primary focus is on providing quality and regulatory guidance and strategy for clinical laboratory test development and verification validation. He interacts with a variety of regulatory and accrediting agencies, such as the New York State Department of Health, the FDA, the College of American Pathologists, and he's an ASQ certified manager of quality and organizational excellence. And he's an instructor of laboratory medicine and pathology. So he is uniquely qualified to discuss this sticky topic of LDTs, IVDs, and the FDA's involvement in the regulation of these tests. He has a master's degree in business administration and, biochemistry and, and, and in biochemistry and structural biology. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think, and let's get to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols, your host for today's episode. 
Today, we're going to be talking about a proposed ruling. Um, on October 3rd, the FDA, FDA published a proposed rule to amend its regulations to make explicit that in vitro diagnostic products or IVDs are going to be devices under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And so that also includes when the manufacturer of the IVD is a laboratory. Um, and included in this proposed rule, which we'll get a little bit more detail in just a minute, but is to is the idea that they're going to phase out the FDA's historical general enforcement discretion approach to laboratory developed tests or LDTs. We'll talk a little bit about what the difference are. So today I, I'm really excited to have with me Shannon Bennett to, to discuss this uh, topic. He's an experienced leader in regulatory affairs, quality management. He's actually an ASQ certified manager of quality and organizational excellence and an instructor of laboratory medicine and pathology. So before we get into how we met, but just want to say, hey, Shannon, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Really excited to be here. Thank you. Really excited for you to be here as well. Um, for those of you more longtime listeners, maybe you heard our previous episodes or, or uh, mine and uh, uh, another gentleman, Mike Drews, we discussed LDTs in the past. And this is actually how we Shannon and I met. He posted an article on LinkedIn, which is a really good article. We'll put, post a link to that in the show notes. Um, kind of his, the other side or the other take. And so I really appreciated the thoughtfulness that you put into this. Obviously, you come from the LDT world and, and have a vested interest in this. So love to um, love to explore more. Where do you want to start with this, Shannon? So I think just to kind of set the foundation for the conversation, and, and you and Mike talked about this a bit, but um, I'll just reiterate a little bit. So broadly speaking, there are two types of laboratory tests. So you have your in vitro diagnostic test kit. So these are made in a factory. There are a couple of vials of chemicals, instructions for use, put into a box. Um, those companies will develop and validate. Then they need to submit information to the FDA and get clearance or approval. And then they can sell those kits to dozens or hundreds of laboratories around the country. So IVDs are one type. And then the other is your laboratory-developed tests. So that is a test that's developed and validated in a single laboratory and then run in that laboratory. Um, and so historically, FDA has used enforcement discretion. And there are a couple of reasons for that. So when the medical device amendments passed in the, the mid-70s, LDTs existed, but they were typically fairly simple, and they were used in support of a hospital population. So the laboratory attached with the hospital would run tests on that hospital's patients. So the number of patients affected, um, should you have a... a, a inaccurate test would be fairly low. Fast forward to today, um, LDTs are quite often cutting edge. So they're, they're much more complex than they were um, back in the 70s. So things like next-gen sequencing, multiplex mass spec, you know, really state-of-the-art technologies. And then the other development is today we have large reference laboratories where, again, the test is performed in that one laboratory. However, um, they get samples from around the country. And so the number of patients um, being affected by that test are significantly greater because we're pulling in patients from, from all over the country. Um, and so because of those reasons, FDA has indicated they felt like they needed to, to act to roll back their enforcement discretion. And the draft regulations that came out um, on October 3rd is not the first go around here. So back in 2014, FDA published a, a guidance document discussing, here's how we propose regulating LDTs as uh, medical devices. There was a tremendous amount of pushback from the industry. 
Um, in addition, there was a presidential election in 2016. I suspect that had a little something to do with it because we went from a, a Democratic administration, which tend to be more supportive of regulation, to a Republican administration, which tends to be a little uh, less fond of regulation. So that may have played into it as well. But ultimately, FDA never finalized that guidance. And so enforcement discretion continued. Um, the next phase is in 2017, FDA released a white paper, a uh, discussion paper, essentially, on here are concepts that um, we think we would use if we were to regulate LDTs. And that eventually turned into a piece of legislation called the VALID Act. Uh, so the general idea under VALID is that you would put IVD test kits and LDTs under the same regulatory model and would actually create a new product class called an in vitro clinical test or IVCT. Um, now that's beneficial because today IVDs are medical devices and there's a little bit of a round peg square hole problem there where it's, it's not a, necessarily a great fit. So IVCTs would be a new class of product that would be a better fit, the argument would be, um, for IVDs and LDTs. So Valid had two shots at being included with legislation last year, um, being added onto legislation. And in both cases, it was pulled at the last minute. So Valid did not pass. So this year, um, FDA took another look at things. So they've tried guidance, didn't work. They tried legislation, didn't work. So the other option available to them is notice and comment rulemaking. And so that's what we saw um, on, on October 3rd, where essentially they are now proposing um, to roll back their enforcement discretion for LDTs and consider them to be medical devices um, like IVD test kits. So, uh, I think the interesting thing is the the regulations are several dozen pages, but the actual regulatory change is like a sentence, which is LDTs are medical devices now. That's basically it. And then lots of additional detail. I have a quick question about this, just because the Valid Act, I know you, you've you seen the different iterations of that um, and, and we're really close with that. What would be the difference in um, changing the IVDs to the, the IVCT? Is that the acronym that they're mm -hmm. using? And then I assume putting LDTs under that same IVCT category, is that accurate? Yep. And then, so what would be the difference had that Valid Act passed versus what they're talking about doing now? So I think broadly speaking, the draft regulations that came out a couple of weeks ago are more restrictive. Um, and um, I think that's just the bottom line is that they are more restrictive than what Valid kind of envisioned. Um, you know, Valid in its early iterations were also pretty strict, but over the course of the three or so years that um, there were negotiations going on between Congress, stakeholders, FDA, I do think Valid moved in a more lab-friendly direction, um, whereas these regulations that came out on October 3rd are, again, a lot stricter and a lot more like kind of the early iteration of VALID or like the 2014 guidance document. Okay. And different people have expressed different opinions on this, and, and, and it's fair if you don't want to express an opinion. I'm just curious, though, if you have a thought, is this the FDA trying to get legislation to move, or do you think this is just the way it's going to be. I, I I don't know if you have a thought on that or not. Um, it, it, that's a complex political question. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, FDA has publicly expressed that they would prefer a legislative approach. Um, but they've also been very clear that since the valid act, um, 
didn't get over the finish line last year that they feel like they have to go the regulation route. Yeah. There is a little blurb at the very end that uh, just talks about, I'm trying to remember, I think it's section 13, other issues for consideration. It talks about how um, that the FDA recognizes that there are uh, new bills that potentially could change uh, the legal status of this. So they do kind of give that little caveat at the very end there. But okay, we, we kind of have to move forward with what what is happening then. So what are your thoughts? You mentioned there's just a very small sentence that really is is changing anything. What are the implications for LDT or lab, laboratories who are producing LDTs? What are the, the implications? Uh, significant, I think, potentially. And so um, FDA goes into that a little bit. Um, by their calculations, um, they have a pretty wide range of what they think it would cost the laboratory industry to move into compliance. But their 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 median value is something like five point five billion dollars per year. So that's a that's a big number. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is, well, a couple things. One, and I think this is a little bit where I I commented on the discussion that you and Mike had. Uh, there is this misconception that you know laboratories are completely unregulated. It's the wild wild west. You know these are people in their garages with instrumentation pumping out test results, and that that's just not true. Um, laboratories are are heavily regulated. So the primary mechanism for that is a law called CLIA, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. So CLIA is the law that you need to follow if you want to run a clinical laboratory. It's run by CMS. And if you want to run a laboratory, you need to get a CLIA certificate from CMS. And then you're inspected periodically, you need to meet the CLIA requirements, etc. Now, CLIA does focus most of its attention on lab operations. So once the test is up and running, we want to make sure that we have the the appropriately trained staff to run those tests. We want to do proficiency testing to ensure the test remains accurate over time. We need to perform quality control with our test runs, things like that. CLIA does have a section on uh, test validation, but it does focus on analytic validation. So one of the concerns that FDA raises is that CLIA doesn't require clinical validity, which is is an accurate statement. CLIA does not. But the thing to to make everyone aware of is CLIA is kind of the, the baseline, the foundation. There are other accrediting and regulatory organizations that many laboratories work with that have higher standards than CLIA. So College of American Pathologists is one. New York State Department of Health is another one. And so those entities do require clinical validity. So while it's true that some laboratories that are just operating under CLIA may not be assessing clinical validity, a lot of those laboratories um, that are um, provided oversight by other entities like CAP, like New York State, um, do assess clinical validity. Yeah. So I think that's an important thing to, to bear in mind is it isn't the wild, wild west with laboratories. Um, they are are well regulated, um, but FDA feels that CLIA doesn't go far enough when it comes to regulating the design and validation of LDTs. Okay. Well, what what are, so I'm thinking if I were a lab and 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 I'm reading this and I'm trying to understand the other side, maybe I've Maybe I'm not really familiar with IVDs or the process they go through with the FDA to to, to become a uh, um, uh, you know a, a marketable test. What are some of the things that I should be thinking about as a lab 
and I don't know if you want to go through the, the continue to talk about the 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 detrimental sides of this, or should we just talk about you know whichever direction you want to go? Yeah, so I think the bottom line is most laboratories don't speak FDA. You know, they right. they have had no interactions with the FDA whatsoever. Um, if FDA were to regulate LDTs, the the learning curve for your typical laboratory would be very high. So that that's first, um, and then of course there would be significant. Uh, potentially costs involved, you know, $5.5 billion per year per FDA's estimate. And I think that is because, you know, laboratories would need to gather documentation. Um, FDA does have some different additional requirements for documentation they'd like to see that laboratories may not have um, that they would have to, to generate. You get the submission process itself. And then whatever back and forth you have with FDA as you try to get approval for your test. So the the learning curve for labs is is huge. Um, and I, I think there are lots of different kinds of laboratories, right? So you might have a really niche laboratory where they've got like three LDTs and that's all they do. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got like many academic medical centers where they've got a test menu of maybe a thousand lab developed tests. So the idea of trying to gather submissions for a thousand LDTs in the four-year transition period in the regulations is incredibly daunting. Um, it would certainly be a very expensive proposition. So I think many laboratories are going to be faced with a difficult decision-making process of, do we want to mess with the FDA at all, or do we shutter our doors? Um, or... If I'm an, an AMC, for example, you know I can't afford to submit a thousand tests to, to FDA. I can only do a hundred. So maybe we need to start prioritizing. We're only going to focus on these tests and these other tests. We're just going to stop offering. So I think there is a legitimate concern about patient access and um, innovation as well. You know, again, that's just taking existing tests off the market, but moving forward. Uh, if I'm a laboratory and I've I've got a really innovative technology that I'd like to develop a test for, um, today I could bring it up as an as an LDT, you know, again, validate it, high quality test. But in a future state, if I also have to go through FDA, that might be hoops that I I don't care to go through. And so I won't bring that test up. And FDA does, you know, call that out in the draft regulations. They say something along the lines of, we recognize that some laboratories may opt to take their tests off the market due to resource constraints or, or whatever the case might be. And they essentially say, we're, we're comfortable with that because we think the benefit to patients outweighs um, those tests going off the market. And I think that's going to be a point of um, significant contention between uh, the lab industry and FDA. Yeah, because there's no grandfathering in. Um, Correct. Yeah, so Val Valid Act um, had grandfathering. So what that basically meant is, if you had a test on the market prior to X date, it would be grandfathered, so essentially you would not need to, uh, you know, retrospectively submit documentation to the FDA, which really helps address some of that administrative clerical burden issue. Um, the draft regulations don't have grandfathering explicitly, so hypothetically, a laboratory would need to submit every single LDT, or at least assess whether they need to submit every single LDT to the FDA. Now, interestingly. Um, this isn't just draft regulations, it's also a bit of an RFI because FDA asks some specific questions um, and one of them is around grandfathering. 
So should we consider grandfathering a subset of tests? What should those tests be? And what evidence can commenters provide that would demonstrate that grandfathering would be okay? So they're at least leaving the door open to discussing the possibility of grandfathering in the in the uh, draft regulations. Yeah, I was just looking at, I hadn't read the comments. Maybe you can speak to some of the comments or some of the bigger comments that have come through. It seemed like there were a lot. I, I, I want to say upwards of 500 comments came through for this proposed ruling. Um, I, I don't know. Have you looked at any of those yet? Or um, I was monitoring... Um, so one challenge too is the fact that you know again FDA did this in 2014. So um, if folks are looking at historical comments, just be careful. You're looking at the current 2023 regulations and not the 2014 regulations. Okay. Um, but I, I do expect there to be many many comments here. Um, certainly, labs are going to comment. Uh, professional societies are going to to comment, and, and I imagine individuals will comment as well. So I, I expect there to be a significant number of comments to this regulation. So one of the things I noticed when I was reading through, I mean, it's kind of early on or somewhere in the proposed ruling, it talks about the different stages um, is what a a four year rollout of this program. And maybe before we go into that, I'll just comment on something you'd said previously about the no grandfathering in previously, I'd heard some people speaking kind of positively about the FDA and how they are sort of learning from EUMDR, the the European Medical Device Regulation, and how it has stretched on and on and on because uh, just just companies are deciding to let their CE marks expire rather than jump through all the hoops that the EUMDR is is requiring. And so this is almost seems like a, a bit of a step in the wrong direction as far as that image. But I, I don't know. I don't Let's talk a little bit about the the stages that they've talked they've uh, they've they've laid out though. Can you speak to to some of those? Sure. So FDA basically has a four year what they consider a phase out policy. So they're phasing out enforcement discretion, which means they're phasing in regulations is another way to think about it. So in year one, um, they are phasing in adverse event reporting. So as a laboratory, if I have an adverse event with one of my LDTs. Um, I would need to submit that in some way to the FDA. So I think this is a little bit challenging. Um, so laboratories have um, many laboratories. I, I would hazard to guess main, probably all laboratories have mechanisms to track adverse events. But the challenge is not all adverse events are created equal. So for example, if I'm a technologist at the bench and I forget to add one of the chemicals to my setup and the run fails and I have to repeat it, that's an adverse event as far as lab is concerned. But it's not due to a problem with the design of the test, the LDT. It's it's human error. Um, another example is I set a, a blood tube on a bench. It rolls off, rolls underneath the bench, and I don't find it for a couple of days. It's now outside stability. I have to cancel that test. Nothing to do with the test. Completely you know, human error. I don't imagine FDA wants to hear about those things. Because again, it has nothing to do with the test itself. And in addition, that really falls more on the CLIA side of things because it's lab operations. Um, I think FDA is primarily concerned with, you know, do you have any design flaws with your test? Um, is your test giving a lot of inaccurate results? Those kinds of things. So I guess one general comment I have is I think FDA, you know, should these regulations become finalized, um, will certainly need to develop some additional guidance documents for laboratories to help us, frankly, understand expectations. 
Um, because again, I don't think they want to get slammed with thousands of adverse events that really have nothing to do with the test itself. So that's year one. Year two is registration and listing. So every laboratory that um, wants to continue uh, performing or developing LDTs would need to register with the FDA and then would need to list information about their test. So again, most if not all laboratories have an electronic uh, lab test catalog, which will include things like the test name, sample requirements, the methodology used, interpretation, um, guidance, etc. So that's all things that FDA is probably interested in for their listing database. So labs have that information. Um, going off of what was invalid, FDA, I think, may also want some performance characteristics. So what's the accuracy of your test, the precision, et cetera. So labs likely have this information, but it is still a clerical burden to you know provide all that information to FDA. But they do provide a year for that to occur. Um, and there are a few other things that occur in year two, um, phasing and labeling requirements. So, so here's an interesting tangent. So, <laughs> you know, an IVD test kit is again a box that I put chemicals into and instructions for use, and then I mail it out to dozens or hundreds of laboratories. An LDT is a recipe on a piece of paper that I'm going to execute in my lab. There's not a physical thing to move around, right? So, labeling requirements as they are, I think, historically understood don't really apply because I'm not going to slap a label on my piece of paper, right? So again, guidance might be required from FDA on what do they think labeling means in the context of an LDT. All right, so then we move on to year three, and that is implementation of certain um, QSR or GMP requirements. Um, design controls, uh, document controls, purchasing controls, uh, CAPA, there's a couple others that they call out specifically. Now, again, there, there may be a fair bit of overlap with the lab's existing CLIA-compliant quality system. So that's positive. Um, speaking specifically about design controls, you know, thinking about what are my customers going to want, um, what does my lab need for this test, et cetera. These are thought processes that labs go through today. I mean, they think about all these things. We don't necessarily write them down, though. Um, so I think that's going to be a bit of a, a change for laboratories is just the documentation expectations of FDA are going to be significantly greater than I think labs are are used to. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'll pause there. Any any questions on the first three years? Because that then that's when things get exciting after year three. Yeah, one quick question. So you mentioned the accuracy and precision of the test. I've heard IVDs. Uh, and I don't know, I'm not as in tune with the IVD and LDT communities as you are, but um, I have been speaking with some IVD um, professionals recently, and they talk about uh, the requirements for their accuracy and precision that they feel like oh, it's higher than what an LDT is required. What 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 is your um, take on that or, or your thoughts? I mean, I, I can't really speak on specifics because you know every test is going to be different. I can say that you know every single laboratory is run by an MD or PhD laboratory director. These are people who are very well experienced. Um, the tests are performed by medical technologists who have you know CLIA required educational backgrounds in life sciences or clinical laboratory science. So there's a lot of expertise in the laboratory. And so we really rely on our lab director's um, experience and expertise 
certainly, um, as necessary, we'll reference things like um, CLSI guidance documents or other guidance as we develop our validation studies. But um, I, I think the level of rigor and the level of quality in LDTs is equal with with IVDs, broadly okay. speaking. Okay. The other thing was the QSR uh, or the, the the GMP requirements. I am just personally curious about that, not being as familiar with what CLIA requires. I know that there's going to be some overlap because I know CLIA requires quality system. What are some of the, the you already mentioned design controls, but are there any other um, aspects that may not have overlap that may require additional lift? So I think there will be quite a bit of overlap. It's a, I think it's a question of degrees. So like Kappa, for example. Um, you know, a laboratory may do kappas in certain circumstances. FDA may expect kappas done in other circumstances. So labs may just need to expand what they do for that. You know, purchasing controls, labs, you know, certainly manage their you know, reagents and validating that they new lots work and tracking and so on and so forth. Again, FDA may expect slightly different, uh, have slightly different requirements um, or slightly more requirements. So it's, it's kind of a matter of degree. I, I think the Venn diagram of QSR and laboratory quality system, there's a fair bit of overlap there. Um, but again, there are, there are concepts that labs are not familiar with, at least not by what FDA calls them. Design controls is a great example. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting too, with the different moving pieces right now, um, if you're familiar with QMSR, the proposed ruling to move from QSR to to, to harmonize it with ISO 1345, for example, uh, the FDA is currently working through how they're going to change the previous QSIT, the quality system inspection technique. So it kind of just raises a flag in my mind. How will they be t inspecting these labs? I'm sure that's going to be a, a completely new way of doing things than maybe they did previously with a, with a, a manufacturer. So that's going to be an interesting thing as well. Do you have any comments or thoughts on that? Um, so as far as the harmonization in the guidance documents, FDA acknowledges the fact that they are currently working on that um, and basically say, don't worry, we'll have it harmonized by the time you guys have to do it. So awesome. <laughs> um, as far as inspections go, you know, I'm sure FDA would intend to have an inspection regime. I can say that is one thing labs are a little bit concerned about because labs typically don't have like a development team in a building over there and the lab runs over here. Quite often, your development staff and your your operational testing staff are sitting right next to each other, and so there is a little bit of concern about uh, scope creep. Frankly, with you know FDA inspections, for example, will they start looking at things that are really more CLIA? Um, and other way too, you know, will CLIA start looking at things that are covered by FDA? And labs are essentially double regulated. So that that is a concern that the lab industry has brought up. Okay. Yeah. Stage four, you said things get interesting. Yes. What, what changes? So year three and a half, um, by year three and a half, the expectation is all class three high risk tests should have a PMA submitted by that point. Um, and these are just for existing tests. Now we're talking. Um, so I think again, getting back to guidance documents, I think FDA will need to create is helping labs figure out which of their tests are low risk, moderate risk, or high risk. So, um, again, labs don't necessarily think of tests in that way. You know, all tests are high quality. We want to have mitigating factors for all of our tests to make sure we're getting accurate results, et cetera, et cetera. So this low, moderate, high risk, you know, might be a little bit of a new concept for, for some laboratories. Now, interestingly, FDA notes, maybe learning from the IVDR experience, like you mentioned, that as long as you submit 
your PMA application by that three and a half year deadline, or if they change it, whatever the deadline happens to be, you can continue running your existing test in parallel with FDA performing their review. So that's, it's good. It's also interesting. Yeah. Um, one thing we we haven't that I forgot to mention that provides some very important context here is how many LDTs exist in the wild? Nobody knows because there's no centralized database. I almost asked you, but I thought, well, how would he know that? <laughs> <laughs> right. So so, but we can do some extrapolation. So uh, the Pew Charitable Trust did a study where they determined that there they think there are roughly twelve thousand laboratories that could be developing LDTs for reasons we don't need to get into, um, but 12,000 labs. If you assume an average of 10 LDTs per per laboratory, we get to 120,000. Many laboratories, so the lab that I currently work for, we have about 1,600 LDTs. Yeah. Um, the Association for Molecular Pathology has estimated there are, I think, between 60 and 100,000 just molecular tests. So I think it's pretty safe to assume the universe of LDTs is probably in that 100 to 200,000 right now. Now, FDA does state they feel that about 50% of tests won't need any submission, presumably because they're exempt. Um, we can quibble over how accurate that number might be. But even if we say 50%, we get down to 80 to 100,000 tests. That's 80 to 100,000 packets that FDA is going to have to review. So there's going to be this massive bolus um, by the end of this transition period of submissions that FDA will will need to be reviewing. So that is also an area of, I think, some concern, not just for the lab side, but I, I have to imagine for other medical device manufacturers, because you know FDA has a finite number of submissions they can review for all medical devices. And if you jam 80 to 100,000 um, new submissions into that pipeline, um, it could cause problems for other people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just running through some of the thoughts in my mind where the, the cost associated, I mean, they're going to have to establish as a manufacturer, I, I would assume, uh, the submission cost. There's the additional QSR cost. So that gap analysis, we forget sometimes about just the analysis to mm -hmm. determine what what's going to be uh, needed and then the actual filling of those gaps. So, yeah, wow, 80 to 100,000 tests, I mean, from from the FDA side, that's a lot. Um I'm curious what what they're currently staffed for. I mean, that maybe that's something a topic of a different discussion, or maybe we can look into that later. But sure. um, yeah, okay. Stage five. What are what are the thoughts there? So then, so um, so year three and a half is is PMAs for your class threes, mm -hmm. and then by year four, so six months later, laboratories would need to submit any low or moderate um, risk tests. So basically, the remainder of your tests that need to be submitted would need to be submitted by year four. And again, once you make that submission by the deadline, you can keep that test on the market while FDA does their review. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's at least that's good. Um, you mentioned a couple of guidance documents that I tried to take some notes here. One being the level of risk for tests. Uh, I don't remember what the first one was. I think it was about the adverse event reporting. Adverse event reporting. Yeah. Okay. Just going to kind of take some notes. What are some so, other things that you think are going to be, I mean, guidance, necessary guidance documents is a really interesting thought that you've kind of brought out just some different ones. Have you, mm -hmm. do you have thoughts on others that you know the, the industry is at least going to need to learn about this? So I think another open question, you know, that four-year phase-in period is for tests currently on the market. 
laboratories are constantly developing new tests and mo making modifications to existing tests. So what happens with those? Um, you know, on the date that the um, regulations are finalized, do I need to, you know, start submitting PMAs and so on for new tests I have coming out to the market? Um, if there's this bolus of eighty to one hundred thousand historical tests, what does that do for new tests? Do they go to the end of the line? Do they get prioritized? How does that work? So I think some additional guidance on that transition period um, for new tests or new modifications to LDTs would also be something that you know hopefully FDA is, is thinking about. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, if we went back to to design controls, you mentioned that, and just like any good engineer, you think about the process of design controls, but you don't always write it down. And and the design inputs, design outputs, controversy, or what's a user need versus design input. I, I am seeing that as that would be a difficult thing to really apply in this situation, I suppose. Um, and I don't know what your experience is with design controls, how, how much you've dealt with it. Um, are there any specific things within that whole process that you see as we may need some guidance regarding this? Well, I think not even just with design controls, but in general, as yeah. I think I mentioned before, but labs don't speak FDA. Yeah. So um, I think there will certainly need to be a significant educational effort um, on FDA's part to really get labs up to speed. You know, labs want to do the right thing. We all want the same thing, which is, you know, safe and accurate tests for, for our patients. Um, but labs may need some help um, gaining the the understanding of all these requirements and, and the terminology. Terminology is always tough. Um, so uh, I think the educational effort is a really important consideration. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you walking me through those. What are the other things missing in this before we switch gears? Because I would like to talk about you know, uh, comments you have and things that you would change if you have, I know you, you likely have an opinion about that, but anything else we missed, assuming things don't really change regarding the proposed ruling. I think the, the one thing I'll flag, um, there was a really interesting concept in the valid act that, that isn't in these regulations called technology certification. It's kind of a, I think of it as a center of excellence approach where a laboratory could submit a, a test um, to FDA using a particular technology, as well as some uh, supporting you know, quality-related documentation, FDA would review that test. Let's say it's it's in mass spec, and and would review all that documentation and say, "Hey, Laboratory X seems to really know what they're doing with mass spec testing. We're going to give them technology certification, meaning they can continue." Um, implementing new mass spec tests and modifying mass spec tests and don't need to be making constant submissions. Um, so that has the dual benefit of reducing the submission burden on the laboratory, which is something that is a major concern, but also reduces the review burden on FDA. They have some assurance that laboratory X knows what they're doing with that technology and can kind of let them do what do their thing. Now, FDA has stated they don't feel that they have the statutory authority today to use such a concept. And so you don't see something like that in the draft regulations, but it sure would be nice to try to figure out a way to make that tech cert or center of excellence like uh, approach work. Because again, I think it'd really be a win-win um, for both lab and for FDA. Yeah. It's almost as if showing the practice of medicine, you know, we, we know what we're doing. You don't, you don't have to worry about us. That makes sense. Um, 
how would that do you have comments on how that would work specifically i mean you you said it was in the valid acts but um any any additional details regarding that um you know i think valid laid it out pretty well um yeah yeah okay well if 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 the valid act had passed and we were looking at an ivct for both ldts and ivds obviously it 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 feels like it would take the ivds a little bit away from the fta um to a certain degree but what what would that look like uh regarding the industry and ldts and ivds what would think what would change versus what we're looking at right now under a valid construct right so i think it would actually make the IVD manufacturers' lives a little easier because they'd still be regulated by FDA, of course. But I would argue that the um, IVCT concept, that new product type, would be more fit for purpose, I guess, for IVDs. So um, I have to imagine there are some things that are a little bit challenging for IVD manufacturers to, to document or demonstrate today under medical device that would maybe be a little bit easier in a more fit for purpose um, regulatory construct. Yeah. That makes sense. So as far as timing goes, this 60 days after it's published is when it would come into effect is what they say, but we don't know when it would be published. Um, just looking at previous proposed rulings and some of the time that it takes, I'm, I am I don't know if you have a thought or if you've talked to anybody who knows, but I guess at least a year, but I don't know if that's accurate. Um, well, I, I yeah. think the, the, the thing that cloudies uh, the water is the fact that next year is a, an election year. Right. So I, I think FDA is going to be motivated to get it out sooner than later. Um, you know, there is a 60 day comment period to December 4th. Um, I imagine there's going to be a lot of comments that FDA will have to wade through. So they probably want to get it out quickly, but there are probably going to be a lot of comments to get through. So I, I really don't know um, how quickly they're going to be able to turn that around. It'll be interesting to watch. It'll be interesting to see it play out. What else? Any other thoughts or comments about this? I mean, I know you've, you've covered a lot of different ground, different different aspects, but what other what other comments do you have? Um, I think we covered a lot of it. I mean, I think the bottom line is this: this will be potentially very disruptive to the healthcare environment. You know, lab developed tests. Um, there are studies that have shown that 70% of the information in the medical record is due to laboratory testing. So obviously, they play a really important role um, in the healthcare environment. And I think I'm just hopeful that however this plays out, that the disruption to the healthcare industry will be minimized. Because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that patients have access to high-quality, accurate tests. Do you have advice to to labs that are experiencing or seeing this for the first time and ways to get ready or, or, or something they should be doing right now? Well, I think the first priority, excuse me, is a comment. So again, comments are open until December 4th. Um, I would highly encourage everyone, whether you're a lab or you're an other IVD manufacturer, to uh, make your voice heard. Um, FDA really relies on subject matter experts like all of us to you know make suggestions and tell them about things that might have unintended consequences or things they're not thinking of. So I just highly suggest that that everyone uh, submit comments to the FDA on these draft regs. Um, <clears throat> as far as what can labs do to prepare, you know, it's, it's challenging because you don't want to get too far ahead of where the regulations are, right? Yeah. So I think the bottom line is um, this is definitely something to pay attention to. 
Um, it's not a time for panic, but it's a time to to keep an eye on what's going on. I guess the other thing I should, in fairness, mention um, that plays into this as well is about 35 seconds after these draft guidances are finalized, uh, I'm sure there's going to be lawsuits involved because when you have this big of a change um, to an industry, somebody is going to sue. So that plays into to this as well. Um, but and I raise that because I don't think labs should sit back and and think, oh, people are going to sue. This isn't going to happen. I don't need to worry about it. Um, I don't think we can assume that. So I would strongly recommend that folks um, read through the regulations, try to get an understanding of what this might mean for them, and then provide comments to FDA. Yeah. Yeah, that is tough because you don't want people just to ignore it in hopes that it'll go away. It's similar with the EMDR type situation. You don't want to just mm-hmm. hope there'll be an extension. Um, okay. That makes sense. So, wow. Uh, you, you brought up an interesting point with the timeline. I mean, if it's if if they do want to move quickly, that could be, I mean, it could be as, as much less than the year. So that'd be interesting. Um, very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you going through the, the proposed ruling. It'll be interesting to watch this. Maybe we'll have to do a follow-up episode once the published one comes out. We can talk sure. a little bit more if that's interesting. Um, yeah. If, where can people find you if they want to reach out? Is that okay if they reach out to ask direct questions? Um, any thoughts? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm always happy to talk shop. I, I can't provide you know regulatory advice or anything, but uh, I'm always happy to, to talk about what's going on in the, the regulatory arena and the diagnostics testing arena. Okay. We'll put a link in the show notes so that people can find you. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll let you get back to it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out and let us know either on LinkedIn or I'd personally love to hear from you via email. Uh, Check us out. If you're interested in learning about our software built for MedTech, whether it's our document management system, our CAPA management system, the design controls risk management system, or our electronic data capture for clinical investigations, This is software built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru or check the show notes for a link. Thanks so much for stopping in. Lastly, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It lets us know how we're doing. We appreciate any comments that you may have. Thank you so much. Take care.